Good evening. I usually say something at this point, but since Leonard decided to steal it. Welcome to Sunday Night Live. All right. Is he, is he taking that over? He probably wouldn't be as good at it. All right. Well, it's our last Sunday Night Live together. And I am pretty much cried out. So I'm just, just, you know I love you with all my heart. Let's go ahead and sing one more time together. 448. Love one another. For love is of God. He who loves is born. said those commandments, the greatest commandments, the essence of life and of faith, on them hinge everything else. Tonight we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are not going to be able to finish 1 Peter. In fact, we're not even going to finish chapter 3. 
But I hope that you will continue it on your own and that you'll study. I know that at some point, Tad or one of the Bible class teachers will cover the book of 1 Peter and you'll be able to pick off, pick up where we left off. So uh, please continue to study this great book on your own. As you know, the theme that we've discussed is being strangers in a foreign world. And Peter is going to be very, very clear about this. We are pilgrims. He'll use the word pilgrims, strangers. We're aliens. We are different from the world around us. And in essence, we're behind enemy lines and trying to survive in this place. Outnumbered, totally outgunned, seemingly in a lot of ways. But yet we've been tasked with taking the fight of evangelism and of reaching the lost into the very belly of the beast. In fact, Jesus would say it this way in Matthew chapter 16, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. So we don't sit back on the defense. We take it right to the gates of the enemy because we're living right at the gates of the enemy. But how do you survive in that? That's difficult because there's a lot of uh, persecution and suffering that's involved with not being home, being a foreigner, a stranger. And so he's given a lot of powerful advice. And tonight, as you remember the last several sections and several weeks, we've talked about submission and the importance of that submission, not because of the worthiness of the people on earth we submit to, but because we are ultimately submitted to our Father. He is master. And tonight he's going to transition into, I guess, what we could best describe as character. We've talked a lot about our, our nation and our country, and I know there's many of you who watch the news and it just impacts you so much. And that's why I try not to watch the news all that much, because I've got more important things to fret about than that. But when you do, I mean, we, we look and we're, we can be so concerned. And I have had to read, I studied several subjects in, in graduate school, and one of my subjects that I focused upon and eventually taught some at the collegiate level was philosophy. And I took several philosophy classes that had to do with politics and just the way governments approach, you know, what's right. Because philosophy is all about what's right and wrong, you know, what's true and what isn't true. And so naturally you're going to have some subjects that address the idea of politics or government authority. And so in one particular class, I was assigned a book that I read and was fascinated by, and I've never forgotten it. It was written by a Spanish political philosopher named Ortega de Gaza. And it was written at the very beginning of the 20th century, like, I don't know, 1915, somewhere in there. And Ortega de Gaza was an anti-democrat. In other words, he didn't believe in democracy. He thought democracy was a very, very poor way to govern. And he wrote this criticism of democracy called the revolt of the masses. That's what the book's called. The revolt of the masses. And in the book, the entire thing is about the danger, and really, it's really quite stunning now, having read the book, because when I turn on the television, 
it, it kind of exactly what he said would happen is kind of happening. He said the problem with democracy is going to be when it runs its course and the masses, the people, when they figure out that they can vote for people who promise them things, they'll do it. When, when they collectively figure that out. And then you won't have leaders anymore. You won't have people who make decisions based upon what they believe to be right and best. They'll make decisions based upon what they believe will get them the most votes. He wrote that in like 1915. And he predicted that that would be the demise of all democracies. Now what he argued for... And part of the reason he said it's going to be such a problem is he says the masses are not capable of ruling themselves. That's his argument. He believed in an aristocracy system. Now, you know, he's Spanish, so he's from Europe. That's not surprising. Europe's had aristocracy for like way back to the Roman Empire. I mean, all through the Middle Ages, everything was run on a feudal system of aristocracy. Everybody knows what an aristocracy is, right? An aristocracy is a class of people who are born to rule. And his argument there, you know, when I thought of aristocracy, I kind of think of the spoiled rich people, you know, who just tell their serfs to go work the land and they steal everything from them so they can live this opulent lifestyle on the backs of other people and that image was kind of dispelled somewhat by reading Degasa because Degasa described a different aspect and he gave historical accounts and he he you know referred to other works that he said that the aristocracy that's not really how it was for the majority in fact he talked about the poor aristocracy and in fact, if you look historically, there were a whole lot of poor nobles who had very, very little, little land. And in fact, they did have serfs who worked their land, peasants who worked their land, but they were out there working beside them because if they weren't, nobody was going to eat. You know, there was more nobles like that than there were the rich, opulent ones who took advantage of everybody. But he said the reason it's a problem, and I'm getting to a point, I promise, he said, the reason it's a, prom a problem is that the masses weren't born to rule. And it, it made me realize, we have an aristocracy in the United States. If you're named Bush, or maybe Kennedy, or Rockefeller, or you understand what I mean. And he talked about the fact that from the time an aristocrat, a nobleman, was born, he would be with his father every day, and his father would be talking to him at three. It wasn't like spoiled rich kids today, right? He would just get everything and no responsibility. These three and four and five and six and seven and eight-year-olds were being hammered with their responsibility on their shoulders for their entire lives. And they were told by their parents, you have to be responsible. You have to make the right decisions because your family's livelihood and everybody who works on this land, their livelihood is dependent upon you. You have to, you're responsible for other people. So in other words, they're raised from the time they're little with this idea that you have to 
be the one who bears the burdens of everybody else. That's what it takes to make the decisions. Now, I encourage you to read the book on your own. It's really interesting. And I'm not making any political applications from it. But I am going to make a spiritual application from the idea of nobility. That's a biblical concept. We talk about that all men are created equal. They are. Until they're born again. And then they're not equal anymore. Because they then become royal. They then become noble. You are not like everybody else in the world. And you may look the same as other people at work. And you may, you know, in some ways talk the same. I hope not in every way, but some ways, you know. And you eat the same kind of food and you maybe live in the same kind of neighborhood and you may wear the same kind of clothes. But it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. That nobleman who was out there in the fields working next to the serfs, he looked exactly the same. He was just as, as exhausted and sweaty and tired. But he wasn't the same. He was noble. You understand, it's hard for us to really wrap our minds around the idea of royal, of noble. It's not about how you look. It's what you're born to be. It's about the blood coursing through your veins. And the Bible tells us, and Peter has stated it plainly, that when we became a part of Christ, we were chosen. We are an elect people. Now, I explained this before. That doesn't mean he didn't choose others. I mean, we were chosen because we also chose him. And if they would choose him, but it doesn't, doesn't change the fact that, you know, if, a, if somebody set, makes a promotion on the radio and they said, everyone who stops by the store today is going to get a free 70-inch television. And you walk in there and they give you the free 70-inch television. You're still pretty special because you got a TV and other people don't. But they could have. You see, it's still available. But the fact that we chose him, he also chose us. We are the elect. When a young man was born noble... He was told from the time he was born that you're not like everybody else. You have responsibilities. And because of who you were born to be, the blood pumping through your veins, your noble blood, you have responsibilities. Therefore, and what I found most intriguing about Degas's work is when he explained the burden of responsibility on the noble class that they were born and told all of their lives and expected to be, to act a certain way, to talk a certain way, to treat people a certain way because they were noble. This text in 1 Peter describes the noble life that God expects 
from his royal people. And this is very imperative in the context of us living behind enemy lines. Living in the world. Because you see, we represent him as ambassadors, as his children. We have to live better than everybody else. We have to live nobly because of whose we are. Now, there's a challenge in this. Lenore and I could tell you that it's been a, a balancing act, difficulty raising children. We wanted to raise children that were very confident, believed in themselves, but we didn't want to raise children that were arrogant. And that is a very fine line. You know, when do you teeter over? I mean, there's just, just, just right over the edge is where arrogance is from real confidence, right? But have you ever known someone who had that real confidence? They just wore it like a robe. But they weren't arrogant. They were humble. That's what he describes here. And so as we dive into the text, we start in verse 8. Finally, all you be of one mind, with compassion for one another, and love, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, but reviling or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain from a tongue of evil and lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let the eyes of the Lord on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now he's going to give some extremely difficult instructions here. Because he tells us to be a loving people. We just sang about that. We know that we've got to love. But then he talks about not returning evil with evil. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. You see, what he's trying to communicate is he says that's how everybody else acts. When Jesus, when he talked about loving your enemies, he said, so you love one another. What's the big deal? Everybody does that. You realize that the mafia does that. Right? Adolf Hitler did that. Joseph Stalin loved people that loved him. Big deal. That's easy. That's easy. We're not called to do that, which is easy. We're called to love better than the world around us. To return evil with good. To return reviling with blessing. And I am not speaking to you as a man who has perfected this area of Christian nobility. It's hard. This is hard. But that's the responsibility of being noble. Because this blood coursing through our veins... This calling, being adopted as children of the king, has some responsibilities. And they aren't all easy. 
He says the world acts a certain way. The world loves the people that love them. You must be better. You must be better. And of course, the reason is our example. I mean, Jesus, if Jesus only loved those who loved him, none of us would be here tonight and he would have never come to a world of people who would have rejected him. It's not easy, but it's necessary. So he describes here a noble love for others, different than the love the world has. Now, that doesn't mean it's an emotion. We've got to separate that out. The world defines love as an emotion. When, when somebody is really ugly to you, you're never going to feel butterflies about them. You're going to feel, oh, no, no, no. In fact, your emotions. But you see, nobility says that we are masters of how we feel. They don't master us. So I can feel hatred towards a person and treat them with love. I mean, I hear people all the time, and it's so comical, even in the church, who say, I just feel so much anger. So? I feel this. And? I mean, right? Do you ever feel angry towards your kids? Yes. I know you have, or your kids are better than mine. They might be. <laughs> but here's the thing. You still feed them? Correct? I hope. So you are capable of feeling one thing and doing something else. Yes? But we, the way we talk, I mean, why do we even reference our emotions as often as we do? I just, I just can't believe he said that to me. I just, it just makes me so angry. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Soul? I mean, it doesn't really have any bearing on what we're supposed to do. Christians don't order their lives based upon how they feel. They're the masters of how they feel. Not mastered by their emotions. That's the only way you can love people who treat you wrong. That's the only way you can love your enemies is to feel anger. Feel, and, and the Bible never says it's wrong to feel something. Have you, is there any text that tells you it's wrong to feel something? Be angry but sin not, yes. I mean, you can feel. I mean, Jesus got angry. Jesus got upset. The Lord was going to wipe out the Israelites like over and over and over. But he didn't. We must have a noble love. We must be better. Then he talks in verse 13 through 15. And Peter says, and, he who is, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Do not be afraid of the threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
He says you need to have a noble love and you must have a noble perseverance. Noble perseverance. Now this reminds me a whole lot of Seth in sports because we had some rules and probably the two sports that impacted this the most was when we were doing tournament martial arts fighting and when we did football all of his life. But we had some rules about, you know, no matter how hurt you are, if you can, you get back up. And you shake it off. And the reason was because, well, we're, we're better than that. You know, son, we're, we're tough. You get up. You shake it off. You persevere. And when you think about what he's saying here, he's saying exactly the same thing. He says, you're better than that. You can't be broken by people in the world when you're royal. When you're noble and you're going to let them break you? No. He says, you have been suffering. You're going to suffer. And he says, and in it you can even be blessed. There is a nobility in suffering. It's all in how you look at it. Paul looked at suffering as a good thing. But then he says, as you suffer, he says, you always be ready to give a defense. Because that has power. He says, you'd be thinking even in those times about who and whose you are. You're better than that. Live that way. And then in verses 15 through 17, always be ready to give an answer with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says, you need to have a noble love. You need to have a noble perseverance. And you need to have a noble witness. You must constantly remember what your destiny and your purpose is. You need to constantly remember whose you are. And as you go, if, you're, if life's going great, you tell his story. If life is going terrible, you still tell his story. You go forth. You preach. You teach. You share. You witness to the good that he's done in your life. Because you're not just noble from some insignificant house lost to history. No. You're children of the king. And princes, princesses, want everyone to know who their father is. You know, this idea of nobility, the risk is absolute confidence. There can be arrogance. Of course, he tells us the way that we counteract that is we're children of the king but not because we deserve it because it was given to us through his magnificent grace he chose us he brought us out we didn't deserve it and he made us a royal priesthood and i told you that sometimes you see people who wear confidence like a robe and it's a humble sweet powerful presence since my daddy told me this story, and I told you this once a long time ago, but since my daddy told me this story, I have revered the man. There was a well-known preacher several years ago named Batsel Barrett 
Baxter. And Brother Baxter was as well known as any preacher in all the churches of Christ. And for the one semester my daddy went to Nashville School of Preaching in 1965, I believe, Brother Baxter taught one of his classes. Several years later, when my daddy was preaching out in, in Arizona, he wanted to go to one of the college lectureships. He'd never been to Pepperdine, heard how beautiful it was. He drove over there. And he got there a day early and was looking around, and there in the bookstore stood Batsel Barrett Baxter, who was one of the keynote speakers on the program. My dad walked up to him and nervous. My daddy said, Brother Baxter, my dad's about 23, 24 at this time. Brother Baxter, um, you probably don't remember me, but I was in your class at Nashville School of Preaching. And, and Brother Baxter turned to my dad. And if you hear my dad describe this, it would move you to tears. My dad preached for a little 50-member church in Coolidge, Arizona. Brother Baxter preached to thousands and was known in every corner of this great brotherhood. And he turned to my dad, he put down the book he was looking at, and he said, Brother Stan, I, forgive me, I don't remember. Can you tell me when you were there? And my dad told him, he said, oh, he said, Brother Stan, it's so good to hear about, tell me about your work. And my dad started telling him, and they talked for about 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then Brother Baxter said, Brother Williams, um, you know, it's getting close to lunchtime. I'm a little hungry. Are you hungry? Yes, Brother Baxter, I, I, I could eat. <laughs> Well, let's go down here to a cafe. He went, they had lunch together. Later that afternoon, they walked back to the campus of Pepperdine and they talked and he asked my daddy about his work, his church, about how he was, and he even asked a few things like, well, Brother Williams, he says, you know, at, at, our, at our congregation in Nashville, we have a little trouble with this. How are y'all handling that there in Coolidge? Bratzel Barrett Baxter asked my dad for his opinion. And my daddy felt like a million dollars. That night, they had the kickoff dinner for the lectureship. And Brother Baxter sat down with my dad and a bunch of other 20-something preachers to, and, and got his food. And they were talking. And my dad said, oh, this is Brother so-and-so. He preaches here. And, and Brother Baxter went around and gave him all that same amount of attention and care. And then the president of Pepperdine University came up and and kind of found Brother Baxter and looked frantic and said, Brother Baxter, you're supposed to be seated at the head table. You're speaking tonight. And Brother Baxter said, oh, well, there's plenty of time. He says, just a minute, I'm, I'm visiting with these brothers. And the president said to him, but Brother Baxter, we need you up front. All right, all right. He said, but brother, have you met Stan Williams? He preaches in Coolidge, Arizona. What a great work he's doing. Stan, tell him what you were telling me about what you're doing with. That's noble. That's, Brother Baxter knew who he was. But he so knew who he was. He carried it with dignity. And with grace. Be better. Than the world around you. But don't do it arrogantly. Wear your nobility. Wear your royalty. With grace. If you're subject to an invitation tonight, if there's anything in your life that needs to be changed, tonight's a good night to do that. Come right now as we stand and as we sing.